November 22nd, 2020. That's the date we began our study in Ecclesiastes. <laughs> Today, on March 28th, we end it. It's been such a fruitful exposition for our souls. This book has met us in our depressing moments of life. It has met us in our sinful pursuits of pleasure. It has met us in our search for wisdom. Last week, it met us in our youth and in our aging. We've seen Christ in this glorious Old Testament book. He's wisdom incarnate. Wisdom clothed in flesh. He's the full and final sage. We've discovered that the cure for being disillusioned with the earth is being infatuated with Christ. Solomon began his book by writing these words in the first chapter. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. He ends his book by repeating those same words in the last chapter. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. In Hebrew literature, we call that the inclusio, or the sandwich technique. You begin with one phrase and end with the same phrase, and your argument is in the middle. The first words of the first chapter and the last words of the last chapter are the same. Church, we've walked through every single chapter of the book. We've exposited chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, chapter 11, and chapter 12. And you say, Kyle, wait, we didn't cover all of chapter 12 yet. Well, I would argue we did. Chapter 12 ended in verse 8. I've preached through every chapter of the book. Now remember, chapter and verse divisions aren't inspired. We added them later to help reference scripture and find verses. This section in the book that we call verses 9 through 14 do not belong in chapter 12. Nor would they form another chapter, chapter 13. Solomon would never experience chapter 13. Bankruptcy. He's, he's the richest man alive. In the Bible, after Ecclesiastes chapter 12, this is what I did in my Bible. After Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 8, I wrote two words. The end. Across from verse 9, I wrote two more words. The epilogue. The chapters are finished. What we have in verses 9 through 14 is simply the epilogue. Ancient books did not have a table of contents, but they did have an epilogue. And I need to explain this because our, our culture is reading less and less. An epilogue is a separate section at the end of the book. It's not a full chapter. It just adds finishing touches to the chapters. Uh, my wife doesn't enjoy reading epilogues. They're really hit or miss for her. Uh, most accomplished writers aren't big on epilogues either. They contend that the authors use them to compensate for weak endings, like a literary escape for bad writers. If you have a strong concluding chapter, you shouldn't need an epilogue. It wouldn't be necessary. 
On top of that, epilogues are often used as an opportunity to just ramble. As the celebrated editor, uh, Alistair Thompson, puts it, if there's nothing else to say, don't be tempted to say it. <laughs> now, full disclosure, done right, epilogues can be a powerful way to leave the reader satisfied. Epilogues are usually set in the future. There's space between the end of the novel and the beginning of the epilogue. This is true of both modern and ancient epilogues. How long that gap is depends on the story. The epilogue could take place 10 years after the events of the final chapter. It could be weeks, months, or even centuries. It's intended to provide closure and resolution. The epilogue is still considered part of the story, but it details something that happens after the main body of the story ends. Now, I'm going to need you to stay with me for a bit. I'm going to evaluate some human epilogues in order for us to really grasp the weight of this divine epilogue. Uh, the goal of a good epilogue is not to give the readers whiplash. Uh, you don't want to pose questions. You want to answer them. You want to satisfy the reader. For instance, in the novel uh, Moby Dick, Herman Melville, the author, writes an epilogue to release the tension and satisfy the reader. And the last chapter of Moby Dick closes at, at such a frantic pace that the reader is in an all-out sweat, heart beating out of his chest. The epilogue serves to calm the reader and reassure the reader that the main character survives the shipwreck and is rescued. And in a, in a providential twist of events, the main character floats on a coffin which allowed him to write the very story you are reading. So epilogues release tension and satisfy the reader. Not surprisingly, the epilogue of Moby Dick was set years into the future. In the novel Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, the epilogue takes place 19 years after the final battle. You get a glimpse of Harry and his friends 19 years into the future. In the novel The Handmaid's Tale, the author, Margaret Atwood, writes an epilogue set 200 years after the story ends. 200 years after the final chapter. We want to know what happens after the story finishes. It's innate in us. It's instinctive. Our hearts long for an epilogue. In the novel Animal Farm, George... Orwell, like any good author, writes an epilogue set many years into the future, and it reveals the fate of the main characters who participated in the revolution. If you're not familiar with the book, animals rise up against the farm. It's a farm revolt. It's an allegory about the Soviet Union. Readers want a window that looks into the future where the characters of the story are. They want to know how they're doing now. What's that evil pig doing now? What about that steady workhorse? What about Benjamin, the donkey? Orwell satisfies the reader's curiosity by telling them about the fate of the characters after the final chapter. On rare occasions, epilogues hint at a coming sequel. Um, you've seen the closing scene of uh, that theological thriller, 
Back to the Future 1. <laughs> you think the story is over. Marty is kissing his love. It's, it's happily ever after until the epilogue comes on the screen. And crazy Doc appears with wild hair and big silver glasses saying, Marty, you have to come back with me. Back to the future. In the epilogue, there is a hint of a coming sequel or a next installment of the story. Now, novels do this as well. They set you up for a future narrative. They give you just enough to tell you that more is coming. In horror novels, which I don't recommend, in the last chapter, the monster is killed. The reader is satisfied. Then the epilogue suggests that he could have had children. Danger still looms. Epilogues aren't foreign to Scripture either. There's an epilogue in the book of Genesis. It's set in the future and it satisfies the reader by revealing what happened to the main character, Joseph. He lives 110 years and has lots of laughs and lots of littles. There's an epilogue in the book of Job. It's set in the future and reveals that God restored everything that Job lost. In fact, twice as much. It released the tension and satisfied the reader by giving details about the main character. The most well-known epilogue in the Bible is located in the gospel according to John. We call it John chapter 21, but it's really not a chapter. It's an epilogue. The last chapter of John, John 20, ended with these perfect words. Uh, check, check them out on the screen. Now, when Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You could write two little words after this paragraph. The end. It is the perfect ending for the book of John. It is the end of the chapters, but not the end completely because there's an epilogue. See, John 20 leaves us wondering, whatever happened to Peter after he denied the Lord three times? Whatever happened after Christ's resurrection to those surprised, confused, stagnant followers of Christ? So John writes an epilogue to, get this, it's important, all epilogues do this, John writes an epilogue to tie up loose ends. Loose end number one, Peter is reconciled to Jesus in the epilogue. Loose end number two, Jesus shows the path forward to those surprised, confused, stagnant followers, and he uses the epilogue to do it. The readers want to know how those issues brought up by the writer, but never satisfied in the chapters, turned out. An epilogue deals with the one question that needs to be answered. An epilogue deals with the one mystery that needs to be solved. An epilogue deals with the one loose end that needs to be tied up. Now, to Solomon's epilogue. The epilogue for Ecclesiastes. If I were to rechapter this book, again, chapter and verse divisions aren't inspired. If I were to rechapter this book, I would do it like this. This is um, the most words I've ever had on a slide before. It's my early Christmas present to you. Here's how I would read chapter the book. Chapter 1, vanity of vanities. Chapter 2, restless hearts and tired legs. Chapter 3, seasons of life. Chapter 4, disillusioned with earth. 
Chapter 5, the vanity of a friendless life. Chapter 6, watching worship. Chapter 7, battling affluenza. Chapter 8, the art of living in life's agonies and adversities. Chapter 9, the letter. Chapter 10, going to dinner with a sage. Chapter 11, death is certain and life is unpredictable. So enjoy each day God has given you. Chapter 12, you need God's wisdom for navigating life. Chapter 13, cast your bread upon the waters. Chapter 14, remember your creator in the days of your youth. That's the end of the chapters. And then we have the epilogue. And now that you've experienced the longest sermon introduction known to man, <laughs> will you open with me to Solomon's classic literary work, Ecclesiastes, and turn not to chapter 12, but to the epilogue. We are about to feast. There is a millennia deep and a globe encircling community of believers who have also sat at this table and feasted from this epilogue. May God grant us the same privilege. The human author will tie up loose ends, issues brought up in the chapters but never solved in the chapters. The first loose end is this What did Solomon end up doing? with all his wisdom. Verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. Now, I don't want to withhold this from you. Some scholars believe this epilogue was written by another author, possibly an editor, a student of Solomon's. They believe that because we move from first-person speech to third-person speech, it has to be someone else. They contest it's an editor writing about Solomon the preacher. They think it's weird for Solomon to refer to himself in the third person. Now, kids can do that. <laughs> little Bonnie can say, Bonnie doesn't want to eat broccoli. Uh, little Tommy can say, Tommy wants to play. That's not weird because they're kids. If a grown man named Todd walks into the kitchen and tells his wife, Todd's not sure he wants to go to work today. Well, Todd's weird. Todd needs to man up, put his work boots on, and Todd needs to stop referring to himself in the third person. So the scholars conclude that Solomon's not weird like Todd, so it's an editor writing the epilogue. Well, I disagree. This is still Solomon writing. He's just referring to himself in the third person. It was a common practice in ancient Near Eastern literature. It's a, it's a writing technique. Weird for conversation, but okay in writing. Moses did this. David did this. The Apostle John did this. All the internal and external evidence has led the majority of scholars to, to conclude that Solomon is not only the author of all the chapters but also the author of the epilogue. And that brings up another issue. <laughs> He's praising his own wisdom here. But we know that Solomon did lots of foolish and unwise things in his life. I mean, we would just have to turn over to 1 Kings to see that he had 1,000 wives. How wise is that? That's 1,000 mother-in-laws. Doesn't sound too brilliant to me. 
uh, when, when, my, <laughs> when my dad used to walk into a building and it was cold, he'd say, son, mm, it's colder than a mother-in-law's love in here. <laughs> I've since found out from my wife that isn't funny. And uh, shame on you for laughing. In addition to all of Solomon's marriages, he sanctioned the sacrifice of babies to foreign gods. Did Solomon ever repent after living a life of sin? First Kings doesn't give any proof of it. But I think he did. I think this book, Ecclesiastes, is evidence of it. Solomon obviously didn't steward well the wisdom God gave him. But somewhere later in life, he repented. He turned around. He dropped pursuing sin and began pursuing God again. He told you in this book that he went down Pleasure Street, visiting all sorts of sensual entertainment. But he discovered that they were cheap substitutes. He'd been traveling the Broadway. But somewhere along the way, he moved to the narrow road. Now let's go back and revisit this verse, verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The wise preacher did not keep his wisdom to himself. He knew that God's wisdom is for God's people. It makes their lives better. Wisdom changes lives. Solomon is now an old man. And he cares about the people of God. And he wants them to have God's truth. God's wisdom. So he embarks on writing a book. A collection of proverbs for the people of God to study and obey. This verse could be a, a commentary on the book itself. He could be talking about Ecclesiastes which is filled with lots of proverbs. He weighed everything that went into this book. He put it on the balance scales to evaluate whether it reflected true wisdom. He studied thoroughly, examining each line carefully. He then arranged them, ordered them in a logical way. The reason that Solomon weighed diligently and arranged carefully is because he felt an obligation to get God's truth to God's people. Verse 10, the preacher sought to find words of delight. And uprightly, he wrote words of truth. <laughs> Solomon wanted to write words that made you delight. Most people think about words from the book of Ecclesiastes making them depressed. Solomon says, that was never my intention. They were meant to make you delight. He chose each word carefully. He's a wise wordsmith. He, he desires for this to be a wise book. So he weighed and studied he desires for it to be an orderly book. That's why he arranged it. And then he desired for this to be an artistic book. Notice the phrase, words of delight. That means aesthetically pleasing words. Attractive and compelling words. American writer, writer uh, Tom Wolfe described Ecclesiastes as the highest flower of poetry, eloquence, and truth. The greatest single piece of writing ever read. Think of the artistic words of delight that dance off the pages of Ecclesiastes. 
He has made everything beautiful in its time. Chapter 3, verse 11. For everything there is a season. There's nothing new under the sun. A living dog is better than a dead lion. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. A time to weep and a, weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. Chapter 3. He put eternity into man's heart. Striving after the wind. 117. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. 7-8. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Cast your bread upon the waters. Up until now, Ecclesiastes has told us what the preacher said. But now in the epilogue, he tells us how he said it. Solomon wants to impart knowledge to his people, so he writes a wise book, an orderly book, an artistic book, and a truth book. He wrote, and I quote, words of truth. Solomon trembles at the thought of manipulating or abusing or adding to God's words. Solomon knows that truth is communicated through words. Words are more important than pictures. You say, Kyle, you're a pastor. Your work is words. That's why you say that. No. When God revealed himself, he did so through words. We call that revelation. God did not reveal himself in a book of pictures. Uh, why didn't Jesus enter the world at a time when YouTube existed so we could pass it along through video? Have you ever sat with a child and looked through a picture book? A book only made up of images and no words at all. You, you soon find out that you can't turn a page without opening your mouth and speaking. It happens subconsciously. Images need interpreting. And the only reliable source of information we have on God is words of truth. When God chose to reveal himself, he did so from the top down. God spoke words into the world. The first loose end, what did Solomon end up doing with all of his wisdom? Well... He, he slaved over it, he studied it, he organized it, and he gave it to God's people. The epilogue tied up that loose end. Now to the second loose end. Where did all of Solomon's wise sayings originate? Where did all of Solomon's wise sayings originate? Notice verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads. And like nails, firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. Now, before I answer this question, I want to focus on the wonderful work of words in this book of Ecclesiastes and what these words do and what these words have done for us in our Ecclesiastes series. 
First, they have goaded us. The words are like goads. Goads mentioned in the Old Testament only here and in 1 Samuel 13. Goads were employed by herd drivers in the ancient world to keep animals on a straight path. They were wooden rods with iron points used to poke and prod the oxen into action or increase speed. They were not designed to seriously injure the animal, but to cause enough pain in the animal that the stubborn beast would begin to move in the right direction. In the days of the early church, in the third century, Gregory said, the mind is roused and spurred by wise words just as much as the body is by an ox goad being applied. Think of Ecclesiastes then as God's cattle prod to steer us away from sin and to righteousness. Words that stop you in your tracks and turn you around and get you going in the right direction. We even have this in our cultural context. They goaded him into doing something. These words have pricked us and helped to push us to God. They've moved us into action. Action that led us to being conformed into the image of Christ. We were sluggish and hesitant. And we needed words to prod us into action. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It hurts you to kick against the goads, Acts 26. It hurt Paul like goads hurt cattle. It hurts you to kick against these words in Ecclesiastes. Don't resist the goads. Submit to the goads. The goads turned Saul the persecutor into Paul the missionary. These goads made some of you leave a life of adultery and walk with Christ in a life of holiness. These goads caused some of you to leave a life of lying and guile and begin to walk in truth alone. First, they've goaded us. Secondly, they've nailed us. When you think of nails here, think of tent pegs. Tent pegs are stakes planted firmly in the ground to keep a tent from flying away. It's speaking of permanency and fixity. The preacher's words are like nails that you drive into the ground to stabilize and secure the tent. Ecclesiastes has given many of you stability, anchorage in life, so you're not blown away. You've been nailed down by God's word. They've given you stability while aging. They've given you security while facing the unknown. But where do these words that goad us and nail us come from? He's like, Kyle, well, that's easy. They came from Solomon. Well, not so fast. The text says they are given by one shepherd. This is the first time shepherd has been used in the book of Ecclesiastes. The book refers to, whenever it refers to Solomon, it always uses the word preacher or king, never shepherd. And notice in your Bible that the word shepherd is capitalized. If you're reading an ESV like we use here, or even if you're reading a New King James Version or CSB, a NASB or RSV, 
the shepherd is capitalized. Now, the King Jimmy doesn't capitalize it, and I think the translators missed it. Finish this one for me, church. Psalm 23, 1. The Lord is my... This is a reference to Yahweh, the God of Israel. In fact, in Psalm chapter 80, verse 1, it refers to God as the shepherd of Israel. These words in Ecclesiastes came from God. These are sharp words from a loving shepherd to keep us on the right path, headed in the right direction. These words are not merely musings of an old wise man. They are part of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant revelation of himself. These proverbs are not just the result of Solomon's own reflections. They are a result. They are the result of the desire of God. The epilogue is testifying that all the other chapters are inspired. So, we know that these words are from God. We know that God is our one shepherd. But specifically, in the Godhead, who is our shepherd? God the Father? God the Son? God the Holy Spirit? Nicholas Perrine notes that the phrase one shepherd is used only three times in the Hebrew Bible. Once here in Ecclesiastes and twice in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, the Lord picks up on Solomon's language and promises Israel a glorious future under one shepherd. And this one shepherd will lead them forever. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God in flesh, came and said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. When we disobey the proddings, the goadings from his holy word, when we sin and stomp on his holiness, Jesus says, I'll lay down my life for these beasts who ignored my proddings and goadings. What a shepherd. What a shepherd to redeem a bunch of stubborn beasts like us. Verse 12. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. This was actually my life verse in my doctoral program. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. Excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. Now I know at face value, our church isn't going to like this verse. Not at all. We like books. We are a church filled with readers we have a recommended book for you each week in our worship guide. We agree with Luther. One book is good, but a thousand is better. We live like Erasmus who said, when I get a little money, I buy books. And if I have any left over, I buy food and clothes. Sarah uh, went out with a lady, my wife Sarah, went out with a lady in, in our church. And she was telling Sarah how many books her husband reads in a year. And uh, they never counted, but they counted one year, and it was something like 160. And I say, keep going. Books are like an axe for a frozen soul inside of you. 
Solomon tells his son, my son, beware of anything beyond these. Beware of any words beyond these words from God. Beware of any words that aren't inspired words. Beware of words that were not breathed out of the shepherd's mouth. Now, he's not saying only read the Bible. He is saying, beware. You should underline the word, beware. There are words you should avoid. You must be careful about the words you consume. Ancient books were written first on clay tablets, later on papyrus and leather. So already in Solomon's day, the royal libraries were filled with ancient books. Even today, more than two million new books are published every year. Our bookshelves are full of books, and our Kindles have them too. The average person is reading two to three hours a day from their smartphone. Now that's a real source of wisdom. Church, will you allow me just to go on a little tangent about words? <laughs> whether, you, whether we consume them from a book or from a podcast, we need to beware of them. A Christian's duty is to beware of what he or she consumes. Be sure you know why you are learning and what you are learning. Be a wordsmith detective. Solomon is, is pleading with you to evaluate and discern the words that you eat. And I, I want to make this application. Let's talk about words from the mouths of preachers for a moment. If you can listen to a preacher or a teacher and never really need to open your Bible, run. It might sound wise, it might sound powerful, but it isn't the wisdom and power of God. It is not the job of the Christian preacher to give people moral or psychological pep talks about how to get along in the world. It's his job to give the people the words of God. The purpose of study is not to know the world better or to know how to better get along in this world. The purpose of study is to know God. The second loose end, where did all of Solomon's wise sayings originate? Well, that's easy. They came from the heart of God. They are God's words through Solomon's pen. The third loose end, it's this. There seems to be conflicting advice in the book. Ultimately, what was Solomon's advice? Well, church, I'm glad you asked. Let's find the answer. Verse 13. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Now, I was hard on the King Jimmy earlier, but I like it here. I like how the King Jimmy translates this verse. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. In other words, this is my final answer. Fear God. Ecclesiastes ends where the book of Proverbs begins. Fearing God. Our Christian culture has so weakened the word fear that, that I'm afraid it has no meaning at all. 
Now, it's true that it's a reverential fear. I'm not denying that. But did Jesus not tell his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, and do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. By implication, I can kill the body and I can put the soul in hell. So I, so I don't like it when people totally weaken the word fear because it says what it says. Fear. And I think it could hurt your view of God to totally get rid of the fear of the Lord. Fearing God is not a negative action point. It's positive. It's worship. Psalm 28, 14 says, Happy is the one who fears the Lord. Now that may sound strange to you. Fear leads to happiness? But that's because you don't understand the fear of the Lord. It's worship to fear Him. To fear God is to take God seriously. To acknowledge Him in our lives as the highest good. To revere Him. To honor Him. To center our lives on Him. Do you fear God? If you don't fear God, you will fear someone else in His place. Fear God. Keep His commands. Keeping God's commandments is not a legalistic Old Testament thing. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, how are fear and commandments connected? The attitude of fearing God should result in the action of keeping his commandments. <laughs> some men say, especially in the South, some men say, well, I'm a God-fearing man. Well, that's evidenced by if you keep his commands. Otherwise, any notion of fearing God, any other notion of fearing God, is just fake. When's the last time you submitted to what the Bible says even though you didn't find it palatable? Have you ever obeyed the Bible even though you found it offensive? Friends, you don't develop your own goads and poke and prod the Bible. You let the Bible and its commands poke and prod you. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. God created us to stand in awe of him and to obey his word. That's God's design for us. A life of joy all boils down to the realization of the greatness of God and a realization of the preciousness of the words of God. Verse 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment and every secret thing, whether good or evil. In a, in a state of despair... Solomon said earlier in the book, he said, nothing, nothing matters, all is vanity. He was showing you that this was his real mindset at a, at a certain point in life. Then he kind of steps out of that toward the end of the book and we arrive at this verse. Why does Ecclesiastes tell us of the final judgment? Why? Because everything matters. 
Knowing that everything matters fuels a life of honesty and integrity. The final message of Ecclesiastes is not that nothing matters, but that everything matters. Why does it matter? There's a judgment. God will judge our every deed, our every word, even our every thought. We will be brought under the searching light of God's judgment. Eventually, he will bring everything out into the open. And if that doesn't frighten you, nothing will. Did not Paul say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. You can't deny that Solomon is motivating his readers to fear God with a threat of judgment. I can't deny that. It's there. But I do have some good news. In the fullness of time, church, Jesus Christ, the Son, came under the Son to be the perfect commandment follower. He did what you are failing to do now. Keep the commands. On the cross, Jesus took upon himself God's judgment for sin. He bore God's judgment for us. The penalty for not fearing God and the penalty for breaking his commands was paid. So, for you, redeemed child, for you, redeemed church, the dread of God's judgment is no longer a motivation to keep God's command. God's judgment is no longer a threat to Christians. So we do not seek to keep God's commandments because we dread the coming judgment. Rather, we seek to keep His commandments because we are grateful for His grace in saving us from the judgment. Now, how shall we close our study in this epilogue? Don't get excited. I still have another 10 or 15 minutes. But how shall we close this study in this epilogue? What did this epilogue do for us? Well, it tied up three loose ends. It even hinted toward a sequel. A coming shepherd. At the beginning of our time together today, I, wa- I talked a lot about human epilogues. We write epilogues because we have an instinctive yearning to know what happens next. We desire to know what happens to all the characters in the story. We write epilogues because our soul longs to be satisfied by an epilogue. There are epilogues that men write, and then there are epilogues that God writes. There's one more epilogue in the scripture that I didn't mention. It's at the end of the Bible, the end of the book of Revelation. And it's a, it's a good thing because, it's, a, it's really a good thing we have it because there are lots of loose ends that needed to be tied up in that book. You think the book Moby Dick had a lot going on before the epilogue released the tension. It's got nothing on the book of Revelation. Like all good epilogues, this one is set years in the future. Like all good epilogues, this one satisfies the reader by showing him what happens to the characters, the people, in the story. Friend, you're in, that, you're in that epilogue. You are in that story. You are living in a novel that God is writing. 
You're living in the chapters waiting for the epilogue. There are loose ends that you want to see tied up. Your heart desires to be satisfied because you're not receiving it in the chapters of your life. Every human epilogue is pointing to the great epilogue. An epilogue not waiting to be written, but an epilogue already penned. This epilogue shows what happens to those of us who follow Christ. This epilogue shows what happens to those of us who do not follow Christ. While you're living in the chapters, dear hurt Christian, read the epilogue. It will give you stability. It will anchor your spirit. And it will secure your soul while the winds blow. So I'll, I'll end. I'll end today simply by reading this great epilogue from Revelation. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, and the sexually immoral, the murderers and the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price, let him come. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. And church, I like the last line of this great epilogue. He who testifies to these things says... Surely, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Relieve the tension. Satisfy the reader. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.